This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we look at the research process in post-conflict Sri Lanka. My guest is Søren Ladd, a PhD student at the University of Sydney. This was in 1956, where largely overnight, all government institutions, health education, various agencies that help the people started to do their business or their kind of operations in Sinhali. And that gave a very limited time or any kind of, uh, we'll say, uh, opportunity for ethnic minorities to be a part of the equations. Søren Ladd's new article is entitled Virtual Qualitative Inquiry. Tensions of Research in Post-Conflict Sri Lanka, which was published in the journal Globalization, Societies, and Education. Søren Ladd, welcome to Fresh Ed. Well, thank you so much for having me today. So for listeners who may not know too much about Sri Lanka, could you start by just sort of explaining the ongoing tension and some of the conflict that has existed in the country since its independence from sort of British rule in 1948? I believe a lot of our history in terms of tension and problems started from there. We had just come back, Sri Lanka had come back out of um, being a colony for about 400 years from the Dutch, Portuguese, and finally the English. And in at that time, we have a, a majority of, um, I guess, different ethnicities uh, and, and diversities uh, uh, within the island in terms of religious diversity, um, etc. The majority is what is called a, a Sinhalese ethnicity and a minority, we have Tamils, uh, Muslims, uh, Christians uh, as well. But since the independence um, period, the Sinhalese majority, which I guess took over the running of the country or governance of the country, started enacting various um, for political reasons mainly to you know get into power and stay in power. Different political parties with a, with a nationalist kind of um, bent started enacting policies in health, in health, in education, uh, and a variety of other matters. One of the standout uh, policies was uh, enacting a Sinhala-only language policy. Now, Sinhalese is the majority language spoken by the Sinhala community. And uh, this was in 1956, where largely overnight, all government institutions, health education, you know, various agencies that help the people uh, started to do their business or their kind of operations in Sinhali. And that gave a very limited time or any kind of, uh, we'll say, uh, opportunity for ethnic minorities to be a part of the equation. So that created grievances and uh, lots of tensions where a lot of minority politicians tried to get equal rights and uh, under the the newer constitutions that were being made. So uh, that was not the only trigger, but the the whole narrative of where the majority singly Buddhist community tried to have dominance within the country and still continue to do so. But that started these tensions and the various attempts by minorities to gain some sort of recognition were kind of knocked down. But I'm happy to share sort of more as we sort of go along. It's quite interesting to think about the sort of lingua franca of a nation changing overnight or being set overnight, because obviously it would exclude quite a lot of people who might not speak that language. So, I mean, back, you said in the 50s when that policy came in, did a lot of the minorities, ethnic minorities, not speak Sinhalese even as a second language? Or was it quite a common language that people were speaking? So, 
at that time english was the dominant uh, language in terms of schooling and uh, i guess the official government apparatus uh, as a legacy of british rule but single is yes was widely spoken uh, in different parts of the country uh, they single buddhist majority form about probably 70 75% you know throughout a consecutive census census but the this the unique thing is that the minorities from you know trying to survive trying to be able to conduct their business and and have a, a normal quote unquote normal living had to learn singalese in terms of maybe not informal schooling but they you'd find a, a minority having large fluency in in all the three languages being singala tamil which is our second official language and english for example the majority muslim population are uh, were ethnic tamils uh, and then they later converted a lot of them for various reasons uh, but they speak most of them i wouldn't say all of them but speak and understand the language so the minorities for you know have from the point of view of the need to live and exist in the in that country uh, largely tried to understand singala and speak singala to some degree but on the flip side the singala majority no politician or no kind of um, uh, i guess agencies government agencies invested in actually making tamil or english kind of accessible so this the nationalism drive singalese nationalism drive kind of didn't allow them to reciprocate in terms of uh, the minorities being able to you know learn and survive in in, uh, in singalese and today are there disparities and sort of inequalities across the different ethnic groups like you know the 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 minority groups are they oppressed in certain ways and disadvantaged in certain ways in society the short answer is yes i believe the the tensions have started in the 1950s which ultimately led to the civil conflict in the mid 80s which then brutally ended in early to in mid 2009 did never really address these historical kind of grievances or any legacies and and ever since the war ended in the post conflict phase which is almost 15 years now none of them have been addressed apart from just some cursory attempts to you know appease to the international agencies from you know scrutiny or just playing sort of lip service so these legacies were never really addressed now when we we take an example of to say one of this form of oppression during the conflict there was this government a law which uh, was called the prevention of terrorism act which basically enabled the government to hold a suspected terrorist or someone who might be against the government for unlimited you know periods of time without any kind of judicial oversight uh, and some people have been you know there for like 25 30 years so this kind of uh, reduced dissent but also if there if you know people and parties have had uh, at the local level grievances they can you know go and report someone to the police station and then that person would be taken away uh, and then you might not see the person for you know for a long time if they are in a in a prison that's that's a positive outcome in the sense that you know they are not the lives are not <laughs> kind of being ended extrajudicially so there's a lot of these kind of conflicts you know say oppressions that are more serving the purpose of the government and as as time has progressed ever since the conflict has ended they they have used it refined it used it more for example we recently in Sinatra we had a an economic crisis where uh, in the last uh, 12 months or so so at that time a lot of there was a lot of protests and people were out on the streets so every community kind of felt the results of that specific you know uh, law 
where a lot of people from all communities were taken. So it's now permeating to the entire population, but still specific communities like the Tamil community and, you know, uh, some uh, Muslim individuals as well have been uh, just taken without any kind of judicial recourse. Wow. So even though conflict is sort of technically over, you said 2008, 2009, it still sort of continues all the way to the present. And in a way, what you're sort of saying is that it's created different ethnic minorities have sort of found common ground because of that law of extrajudicial capture, let's say. Yes, that's uh, definitely one way to accurately um, point that out. And I think there are other laws as well. Obviously, with the last sort of 10 years, with the uh, emergence of social media and where social media, uh, when spaces were limited for protest or dissent, um, or voicing anyone's opinion, social media has become, you know, a kind of uh, a catalyst for various groups to express their opinion. But even that space, newspapers can get shut down. Uh, if a person makes a, a post on Facebook, you know, uh, criticizing uh, an official of the government or of the previous president, for example, uh, you might have the police or the criminal investigation division coming to your house the next day or, you know, to kind of ask you about what, why you have made that post and make life pretty much difficult for you. So there's a lot of harassment also in that way. And, and there are various apparatuses that uh, the government has been using. And I feel that the, um, the war and the history of that and the tensions before that and that has driven successive governments to be more uh, militaristic, even though that we never, Sri Lanka has never had a history of military rule. The military is being used, uh, and and other you know uh, security agencies are used for the um, to reduce the you know I guess the problems that the governments are facing in terms of their mismanagement, their corruption, and things like that. Those agencies are being used to now stymie uh, dissent and rather not solve you know most of the problems that. So it's a strange mix, actually. It started out as a, as a division of nationalism, which still is existing. But now with all the other problems that have kind of accumulated over the decades, it's just kind of a very, it's a state of flux, I believe, at the moment. So it's very hard to find out where, which state, which direction it will head. In that state of flux, as a PhD student in education, what were you sort of curious about? What were you going to study within that sort of very complex context that you just explained? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I, I feel my personal interest stems from the education, uh, learning, teaching, pedagogical kind of approach, just to put some context around that. So during these ver- various uh, phases of conflict and tensions, riots, uh, uprisings, etc. So during these various tensions that have uh, gone out throughout the decade, there's been a strong uh, influence and uh, activism that has come out from the university and the higher education kind of sector where academic students have really been at the forefront of a variety of uh, causes to, uh, and also sometimes in violence as well. So in terms of uh, response, in terms of what the government could be doing to, I guess, bring about reconciliation, to build peace, to um, create a, a rather socially cohesive Sri Lanka. In the secondary school system, there has been a lot of uh, international agencies and southern government kind of response in terms of changing curriculum, adding programs, etc. But within the university sector where there is more agency, there's more individual 
contribution in terms of the student or the academic, there has been very limited official government response or kind of programs implemented. The universities themselves have uh, you know, taken initiatives and steps to include programs like peace education programs or courses. But coming back to your question, so I wanted to know what is happening in that space. Are we looking, is Sri Lanka looking to work together in the future? And how are we doing it within the classroom context of higher education where the future sort of decision makers in society, what direction are we trying to guide them to in the future? It's a really fascinating topic. And I, I would imagine your whole thesis, your dissertation is going to be looking at this. But what you wrote about recently in your new article is 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 not that topic specifically, but about how you research that topic and some of the challenges that you faced doing so. And it's it's really quite fascinating for you to sort of think through what it means to research students in higher education while being a student in higher education, but living outside of Sri Lanka, but, you know, having a connection to Sri Lanka, it gets a bit messy. So I guess to start, unpack some of this in that study on higher education and, and how it's contributing or not to sort of some of the reconciliation and what it, what it might mean for the future of the country. Would you consider yourself an insider or an outsider, which is usually a big distinction when we think of, you know, qualitative research methodology, but how would you sort of position yourself in that study? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Well, I, I, this is something that I've sort of always grappled with as well myself in terms of a research context, especially when you are conducting research, you, you learn about insider, you learn about the outside, and then you try to apply it to yourself. I guess if I apply that conceptually to myself, I'll probably exhibit a bit of both in terms of being an insider and an outsider. And I feel, as an example, being born in Sri Lanka, speaking Sinhalese, going through the school system, uh, and then migrating to Australia where I live right now and I study higher education and sort of being a part of uh, that lifestyle and also that education system and then understand, trying to understand how it works back, quote unquote, home again. So there are elements within myself and that's some of the things that I tried to bring out in the article itself, trying to point out my background and also the, the, the lived experience, my current lived experience as a student. So I, I feel that I would exhibit a bit of both in terms of being an insider and outsider. And I think moments within the research journey, these insider or outsider thoughts or feelings or situations or you yourself as a researcher may identify um, much more closely. And I think that's something that happens when, you know, when maybe not necessarily when you're doing the research interview, but when you are doing the, the data collection and the data analysis part itself, okay, and trying to find out how did you feel at during that moment? How did you respond to that moment? So these are some of the questions that I guess came up uh, during uh, that second phase or the analysis phase as well. So what would be an example of that when you're, you're in Sri Lanka or you're doing these these interviews online and you're talking to people back in Sri Lanka? You know, talk me through an example where these two different identities of being an insider and an outsider, sort of simultaneously, but also one more than the other at different times and, and you having to sort of negotiate that identity. Walk me through that. How did you do it? So, yeah, that's a really actually an interesting part of, of the research. So COVID obviously threw a kind of a span in the works for everyone in terms of research. So it was uh, mostly done virtually. Uh, but my research was done all virtually. 
uh, I was intending to go uh, to the research context. But if I can split, for example, the, the, the method itself or the process itself, you know, just a very operational kind of process from the first point of actually looking at or selecting research participants, uh, I used a sort of a snowball technique. But getting that first person's uh, kind of consent or approval to, uh, I guess, for them to be in a part of my study, that was one of the first moments where, for example, I, I didn't speak in Sinhalese where I'm able to speak in Sinhalese, where I know if I spoke in Sinhalese, there's a, a quicker familiarity. But, you know, keeping that kind of not officialness about speaking from a foreign country, but I, I spoke to the person, that person spoke to me in English, responded. So I just went accordingly uh, and that but at the latter part then we started you know as as when you meet your own sort of country person men or country women there's always you know a bit of back and forth in terms of where you're from and things like that and then you kind of negotiate speak uh, speaking a language that's familiar or you might share uh, common commonality so that's one kind of example and another maybe if i can sort of um, talk about which is in, in terms of the the research interview itself where, for example, if you speak to someone from, say, a Tamil background, whom I have you know, plenty of uh, friends and colleagues uh, back home, but a practitioner who has lived in another part of the country, there is a slight, slight difference in terms of the familiarity or the, uh, the way you kind of approach uh, and the question you speak, because there is a sensitivity in terms of their lived experience. And you don't want to, to say, as a researcher, not to say uh, prod too much because it can, you know, draw up for them various types of negative memories or trauma or stress, which can, uh, it might be something mundane you might say, but living in the capital at the time of I was growing up, we had a, even though the war was apparent in, in the capital in terms of, you know, bombings and, and violence, it was not the theater of war. So therefore, that lived experience is different. So that sensitivity, sensitivity has to be there in terms of whom you speak with, where the person is coming from, and what stage of kind of uh, experience they are, and and how 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 uh, flexibility they are in their mannerisms as well. So in the case of speaking to a Tamil who lives outside of the the capital city and has had a you know tr- more traumatic experience, most likely. In your experience, was it better to sort of play the role of being an outsider to, to sort of accommodate those sensitivities? Or was it better to be sort of seen as an insider, like I'm part of Sri Lanka, I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I know the history, I, I, I can sympathize with what was going on. Was that a better approach? Like, which one did you end up sort of using in that particular case? So that's a good question. I think in that specific case, I felt I used more of my insider, let's say, characteristic, not most, not in a conscious way that I approach it, okay, I will be dealing with this person in this manner or dealing with this person in this manner, but more so having the conscious, not, I would say consciousness, more the awareness that how the conversation was going and what sort of, uh, I guess, rapport that one can build, because these are some of the challenges that come up when one is, uh, as a researcher, we are doing uh, a virtual uh, research and, and I think even though virtual research has been you know a part of research for, for some time now during COVID it was sort of amplified and there was no I would say uh, really best practice that one could draw from immediately to go ahead so I guess being aware and, and uh, using more of my insider in terms of questioning finding 
some commonality. For example, if it's a place uh, where I may have visited, just talking about that location and some of the historical sites and kind of tourism, maybe related kind of uh, places, so that 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 creates that rapport to, to build uh, a bit more trust, not trust, but more so in, uh, engagement from the participants. It's a tricky negotiation, and I, I would imagine that you had no formal training on on that particular aspect of doing research because it's such a lived sort of experience that you go through in the moment, and you have to learn to negotiate that that relationship rather quickly. It also brings up an issue that you also write about, which is as a researcher thinking through some of these issues and you know having these conversations with different different people in Sri Lanka, certain memories come up that sort of stir different emotions that you might not have wanted to sort of engage with. And so it's through the research project process that the researcher yourself is negotiating some of these sort of rather more difficult emotions that might have been repressed and not necessarily discussed. And so, you know, did that happen to you? You know, how did you manage and navigate that complex sort of reality that the, the research process itself created these difficult emotions yeah that's that's a really good question and and in the article i kind of write about this in terms of these suppressed ideas or notions or feelings as as residual embodiments where your experience your history uh and things that you go through as an individual you might internalize them and normalize them as a part of your growing up for example violence and being if you go to school uh you school bag will be checked, you know, even though you're only bringing books and, and, and a lunchbox, uh, it's checked every day and you have to be in line to go into school to study. And that's generally uh, for all schools at a certain period of time. So these are some of the things that shape my upbringing uh, or my kind of uh, experience. Other people in other parts of the country have gone through much, much more in terms of violence and trauma and stress uh, and things like that. Uh, which uh, they that are still not uh, dealt with by themselves or even in a national reconciliation process. So there's a lot of uh, historical drama in this country, and a lot of these have been suppressed and not dealt with. So that residual embodiment gets triggered when you have to deal. With, for example, I went to a school in the western part of the country, which is the capital. Uh, again, like I said earlier, it was not the theater of war, but there were sporadic violence and. Uh, things that you you can see that there is something happening in terms of the country. But in my school, I went to a Christian school, which is mixed. We had all different nationalities and religions. So in that sense, you kind of I, I was able to normalize uh, diversity and you know multicultural living in terms of that. But uh, I went, my, I studied in, in a singular stream, or the language of instruction was Sinhalese. Uh, I never spoke Tamil. We were never taught Tamil because it was taboo for any you know government. In the government school, even though we, in my own school, we had a Tamil stream with Tamil students of the Hindu faith, no one ever really thought of, you know, maybe asking a teacher from the Tamil stream to come to the single stream and, and, and you know, teach a very spoken Tamil kind of class. No one ever thought of that. So at that time, it was not the done thing. The resource was there and that's how it sort of grew up. So there at that time as well. So as an example in the research, when with virtual research, the opportunity arose to speak to different participants from all across the island, from places where they were less involved in the war to places where they were more involved. And that initial kind of switch sort of was triggered when should I speak to people from 
these places in the north and east, which is where the war really took place for almost three decades. Uh, so that's one example. Should I, the opportunity is there. Should I do that? Because if I went, um, as do in-person research, that opportunity would have been much, much harder because you've got to go through a lot more hoops and the person in front of you, uh, you know, it depends on the person you uh, speak to, uh, you know, whether they'll give you or grant you the permission and then you have to go through the security clearances, meaning, uh, the, the checkpoints that could be there. Not to say that the, the, those locations are like a war zone today, but there's a lot of eyes and ears on the ground and everyone in terms of military and security. So then people could be putting increased risk to themselves. So that was a big tension that I had to negotiate with and, and consider. Uh, there is the opportunity. I feel a study of this sort, uh, this method has not been carried out in, at the university level. Uh, even this is, I consider it more of a meta study and it would, would have been a missed opportunity if I didn't at least try that. So the way I negotiated it was trying to find some participants or participants. I joined, you know, various kinds of, uh, online university classes and, and presentations and then tried to uh, seek one of these participants out and then managed to do that. It's quite fascinating, you know, thinking about what online interviews can afford the researcher and sort of give you these opportunities that would have not been necessarily possible through face-to-face -face interviews, as you've just expressed. I guess I'm still, I'm, I'm interested in some of these residual embodiments that you talk, talk about, because obviously you're going through it, the participants going through it. Do you think in this process, these residual embodiments, as you reflected on them, helped you understand your research topic in greater depth? I think the answer is yes. The more I think about it is to, is that consideration where partially to one, one extent, the, the study was more of a representative co-creation of, of new sort of knowledge in that sense. And I think not, not if I dismiss the opportunity to engage with uh, participants from a certain region, that would have not been uh, the correct representative. And maybe there might be other opportunities in the future to do more research, which I'm sure there will be. But for a person that is on the ground to cover about 12 universities that would take a long time and much more, even though I wouldn't consider, you know, there's obviously a lot more that one can do in, to perfect uh, the research. Uh, I think that it would give a good starting point. Um, and I think finally, I would say maybe on the residual embodiment is that when you speak to certain participants, even though you may not, or the, that person may not say, you know, this is because of the war, this is because of the trauma, they themselves externalize it. For example, a, a participant might say, in the classroom, I ask my students to do field research about local issues. Uh, so the students can do the field research, but uh, when they try to publish it or present it, then you know you might have uh, security forces sending a message to the dean saying, uh, you know, these students have come like this based on this instructor's advice. You shouldn't ask them to do that in the future, etc. So there is that kind of uh, so the practicality that can't be applied. So that kind of knowledge you you won't be able to. Not I won't be able to gain, but it won't be able to be shared uh, with the rest of the world, uh, where academic freedom, for example, is not equal in different parts of the country. So there is something that uh, is a sort of a drawn out from the wider study, which you have to consider through your residual embodiments and meeting that, uh, I guess, process. 
Yeah, and to do research ethically and to not put anyone at risk, any of your participants at risk in that sort of, you know, heavily surveilled environment. So how did you manage that, right? How did you, as a researcher, navigate, you know, such surveillance by the state of sort of knowledge production and dissemination, as you're saying? You know, it must be, being both an outsider and insider, it must be rather difficult to sort of figure out where you have, you potentially have a lot of academic freedom, but at the same time, the people with whom you're co-creating this knowledge with do not. And so it becomes this really strange reality. So, like, how did you navigate some of those sort of ethical complexities? Yeah, I think it's a very, very interesting question. And I think, I feel that um, it's something that I didn't stumble upon in terms of an answer straight away. I had to... Uh, do a lot of reflection and also be able to follow and do more research on how to do, I guess, conduct the research ethically. As I said earlier, like, there was no sort of playbook written for COVID. And the ethical, I guess, committee or boards, they have a certain way of doing uh, or setting the standards. Now, in terms of navigating that, I, I knew from the onset that, for example, I wouldn't be sharing the participants' names at all or even their university names. So, Maybe the location of the university, which I didn't include in, in the ethics review um, application. So that's one way in terms of totally anonymizing their kind of identity and where they work. So then that way, that's something I decided even before I had made an application because purely because of the subject matter that I was dealing with. Even though I didn't ask a question, you know, have you taken part in violence or things like that? It's more, uh, I tried to focus on the teaching, the learning, uh, that the university themselves have adopted and enacted so it's something within the sanction of that uh i guess context but you know you never one never knows as a researcher things can lead into very um sensitive topics which are dealt and taught in various classrooms which i discuss in the in the wider study so that's one of the things i decided early on and that's part of my insider status which i i use and i, I decided and i made it a known and also i in terms of the operational aspect of, of conducting the virtual research choosing times that are convenient for the participants, uh, technology that they are convenient with, more secure technology in terms of uh, Zoom or where it's recorded, how they sign their consent form. If they didn't, even though I believe it, uh, there are various ways of obtaining consent, the bo- the ethics committee wanted sort of a sign, um, you know, approach, which can be very restrictive, uh, especially during COVID where people can't access their you know, office computers or printers, things like that. There's some logistical additional to the surveillance uh, and and other challenges they can face. So trying to make the process for the participants as easy as it can be and facilitate that process and take more time to listen and, and be aware. And in that period, I, I managed to speak to over 30 participants, which is something that um, may not have happened if, I had done an in-person research. It could have been far less than that. Now, that's not to say that it's a win, but it's more so the ability, the, one of the, I guess, benefits of conducting virtual research uh, with the right consent. So I guess to maybe summarize, uh, it's more so being aware of the situation and what sort of questions and even presenting them guideline questions where they, you know, and read about it and and have an idea of what they might be getting themselves into. So even that process, being very open and transparent, and then if they consent and they have to go ahead, then sort of move on to the next stage. And even if after the interview they felt that, okay, it was not something up to uh, what they prefer, and if they asked me to scrap it, 
I totally respected their opinions and I sort of didn't you know, use uh, any of, uh, of that. There were a couple of occasions like that. So these are some of the practical kind of uh, steps I took during that time. And in that experience, you know, as a final question here, is there anything from that experience that you learned about the sort of ethical research project, a process as articulated in the Australian context, which is, you know, rather bureaucratic and there's these committees and they have a very particular conception of what research is and looks like. But then doing research in this context of Sri Lanka that's so complex and there's so much, there's issues of trauma and conflict and you know, residual embodiments and all these sort of really difficult questions that you're you're raising here. Is there anything you learned in the process that sort of you could reflect back on the Australian ethical research system that you would say, you know, this needs to change in this way? Yeah, I think that's something that I really sort of grappled with. I feel they are at two different paces and two different systems entirely. In, if you can term Sri Lanka as a part of the global south, they have a different set of uh, standards and processes. Whereas in Australia, where you one could say they are very robust and stringent or following strict guidelines, and as you mentioned, that version of research, which is, is good and has its uh, benefits, I feel that there is limited allowance for the flexibility and a once-in-a-millennia event like COVID, maybe you have not been programmed into ethical committee uh, protocol, but I think there could be a degree of flexibility, especially, for example, getting consent. As long as the person is aware, then in virtual scenarios where maybe after COVID they may have improved it, where you could get verbal consent or written consent in other ways through an email, things like that may make it more easy where rather than you have to get a physical signature or an electronic signature, which may not be a problem for a person working at a university that is fairly well resourced. Whereas when there was no internet connection, uh, limited kind of technological problems as well, and everyone was locked down, there, there was that kind of disparity. And I'm sure other researchers of that time who had gone through COVID uh, would also have faced very similar issues. And I think hopefully moving forward, they would be able to enact some of those flexibilities where uh, the the researcher won't have to think of these dilemmas and find ways to micromanage to manage them in a certain way. You find you can find a way. The other thing also I would say is about the the training itself, the research, how to conduct research training. The university does have lots of programs, but I think switching or pivoting from one version to another, which it's not ideal. It's something that maybe some, you know, maybe more guidance uh, could be something that could be afforded to researchers going forward. Well, Saren Ladd, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. I look forward to reading your dissertation when it is finally submitted and published. And if I was the University of Sydney, I would be asking you to help redesign some of those research courses. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you, Will. I really appreciate the opportunity and thanks for having me. Saren Ladd is a PhD student at the University of Sydney. His new article is Virtual Qualitative Inquiry. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Ngunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements. 
and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shocknet Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.